0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the CBO Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Donna Sheeley. Happy to have you all join us today. Today, we are speaking with Molly Mercer. She is the Chief Financial Officer for Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education, and we'll get into what that is shortly. But hello, Molly. How are you? Thanks for being with us today. Hello. It's great to be with you. Yes. Yeah, so excited to have you. Okay. So we got a break down the Pennsylvania state system of of higher education I know that this is a, a state agency that is oversees several state-owned universities so talk to us a little bit about that
1: Sure, absolutely. The Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education or PASHI as we're sometimes referred to. So, um, we are the state owned public university, um, system for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So, um, we have 10 unique universities that are part of our system. We actually had 14 a while back. We've been, uh, doing a lot of work, including some, some merging and, and so on. So we have 10 institutions today. Um, at PASHI, we are the largest uh, provider of four-year degrees uh, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and we're also the most affordable, which is really important for us. Um, just a little bit about our system. Um, we are really, um, you know, predominantly serving um, the constituents of Pennsylvania. So about 90% of our students are Pennsylvania residents. Um, we also uh, serve a lot of uh, low-income and first-generation students. That's a critical part of our mission. So about a third of our students are first-generation college students. Neither parent uh, has a college degree, and about a third of our students are low-income pell So um, really tied to our mission is that accessibility. Um, And we at PASHI are really passionate about um, the power and the promise of that affordable higher education.
0: So let's go back. So I know that you got your undergrad at the Penn State University, is that correct? Now, are you from Pennsylvania? Were you born in Pennsylvania?
1: I am. Yes. Uh, born in Erie, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, so born in Erie Um, after college, went to the Pittsburgh area and now I'm halfway in between. So I'm based in Western Pennsylvania, about an hour north of Pittsburgh.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So you definitely have some roots and I know that plays into everything that you're doing now. So let's go back to uh, your undergrad years. Let's talk about what you studied and um, why you got into that field. And we'll just work our way up to what you're doing now. So let's go all the way back.
1: <laughs> okay, we'll do that. Um, you know, my undergrad is in accounting. Um, and actually, it's interesting, I, I really didn't set out to be in accounting, I, I thought I wanted to do something in general business. Um, but I really took to my accounting classes once those started uh, my second year of college. And, and I joke, this is before, you know, cell phones and texting and email, and uh, my professor called me once a week <laughs> until he convinced me to become an accounting major. Uh, wow. He really felt that was, you know, where I belonged. And, and I really appreciated that that. And honestly, that kind of engagement stuck with me. Uh, My professors um, were wonderful. I think that's such an important part of um, the process. So I was encouraged to go into accounting and I really haven't looked back. Um, I I have loved it, um, every part of it. When I graduated, um, I headed to um, start my career as a CPA in a large accounting firm uh, based in downtown Pittsburgh. So um, that's kind of where I started. From there, I, and I will say, you know, I don't, I didn't have a large background in public higher education. I took a, a career journey through several different industries. Um, after being at that CPA firm, I headed to one of their clients. Um, that client was certainly part of the higher education landscape, but it was fairly removed from a traditional college campus. I worked for an up-and-coming for-profit uh, higher education. I worked at their organizational headquarters um, for about nine years. Uh, they were a publicly traded uh, SEC registrant company. It was fast-paced. It was an action-packed role. Um, I worked my way up from um, various senior accounting and manager roles all the way up through becoming a corporate officer overseeing accounting uh, during my time there. When did you make the switch to higher ed? Yeah. So I had one more stop along the way um, before I headed to higher ed. Um, you know, I was at that, that organization and really felt I wanted to get uh, an opportunity to head into a different industry. So from there, uh, an opportunity opened up at Westinghouse Electric Company. Um, their new world headquarters was being built about five minutes from my house at the time. And so I headed into nuclear energy, which is quite different from really what I did before and, and what I came to do after. And, and what a fantastic experience. I was there for four years. Um, I headed into a role where I was um, responsible for the internal controls compliance. Uh, Quickly, that role blossomed into a broader role, including um, standing up a brand new enterprise risk management function and also uh, shifting internal audit from an entirely outsourced approach to a co-source model. Um, It was a very exciting time there, Um, and so standing up these functions, traveling the world uh, really contributed to to my learning. Um, But really, I actually made a pretty big shift. My whole family did, actually. Um, My husband and I, we really just kind of took stock of of not just our professional goals, but our personal goals and and the young family uh, that we then had. And so um, it ended up that he decided to leave his fairly stressful IT career. And we moved about 45 minutes from where we were uh, to a much more rural location and uh, bought a business that he ran full-time. Time. It was a bed and breakfast. So he ran that bed and breakfast for eight years. And it was, you know, a family business, if you will, too. So we were all kind of engaged in one way, shape, or form. And so then that put me on the hunt really for a career where, um, you know, I could also bring a little more balance into my life, um, but still be really challenging and fulfilling. And uh the AVP of finance role at Slippery Rock University, which is part of the state system, um, that was being searched. It had and that failed a couple searches before I had heard about it. And so um, my timing was really lucky there. And I was brought on board. So I ended up having a a great eight years at Slippery Rock. Um, The last two of those years I had was elevated to the CFO role there.
0: Wow, that's really nice, the bed and breakfast and all of that. And I'm sure that was a great place to raise your children and do all of that. So it certainly
1: was. It was a great decision.
0: Yes. So you were at Slippery Rock for eight years, and I'm sure that's where you jumped into the CFO position. So talk to me about some of the things that surprised you when you you got that role as a CFO and you were like, okay, this is different.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I would say I luckily had about six years under my belt at uh, the institution. So, you know, I knew it really well and, and I knew um, the responsibilities. I was AVP of finance, but I think one of the biggest adjustments when you're, you head into that role is, you know, now your peers and your direct leader are all, Non financial individuals, so they are really relying on you to be that final kind of gatekeeper of, you know, dis- whether it's decision making, perspective, guidance. You know, when you're in those, you know, second tier, third tier roles, you always have someone you're interacting with who who also is financially oriented. And then when you head into that role, you know, you you don't. And so I think it just really, um, for me, and made it even clearer how important, you know, producing really relevant and helpful information um, that that everybody could understand, not just maybe reports that the CFO could understand, but reports that everybody could understand, um, being able to explain issues, you know, very clearly without jargon, you know, all of those things. So I think that was one of the biggest, um, you know, ahas for me, just experiencing that. Yeah,
0: yeah. So... At Slippery Rock, which is one of the schools in the system. Yes. You transitioned to what you're doing now. So talk about how that came about and how you ended up being a part of the system. The the uh how do you say Apache? Pashy. Yes. You could. Yes. Pashi.
1: Mm-hmm. Pashi, Okay. Um, <laughs> you, you got it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, really, I, like I said, I had spent eight years there at Slippery Rock. I had accomplished, um, you know, many of the goals that I had set for finance. Um, we had conducted some great transformation of the function, um, really, um, you know, transitioned it to a really relevant, um, Fantastic function with a great staff and team. Um, so I felt I had accomplished a lot of things I wanted to there. Um, and also uh, back to those earlier career steps for me, I had a lot of background previously at central type offices, headquarters, or you know the like. And I really enjoyed that engagement across multiple locations. I liked you know being that resource and and that variety of working with those institutions and helping them um, with with. You you know, whatever I can be of support with. Um, so that uh, paired with the fact that our chancellor has um, been undertaking huge transformational change in the system. And it was an opportunity to be even more directly a part of that. So uh, the time was right. And I haven't looked back since that was about three years ago.
0: So everything that you are over, can you just talk a little bit about all the things that you are responsible for in this new in this world that you're in now?
1: You know, here at the system office, my role is really to provide guidance, direction, and strategy across the fiscal and facility areas. Um, so, when I say fiscal, that encompasses the accounting and controller function, uh, treasury, which we had many couple years being very active in the treasury area, um, as well as the budgeting, the financial analysis roles, and then um, providing facility uh, direction and oversight as well. So, you know, as part of that, I work really extensively with internal and external constituencies um, to make sure our finances are well stewarded um, here at the system, making sure we have effective processes and policies. Um, I do this through day-to-day processes that we manage, as well as a big part of my job is spearheading um, key projects and initiatives, and there has been no shortage of those. So
0: <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. So, okay, I'm trying to wrap my head around. So, You're overseeing the 10 state-owned universities. So what does the shared governance look like? I'm assuming each university has their own CFO and all of that. So how does that play out and how do you all, you know, what does shared governance even look like on that wide of a scale with 10
1: state-owned universities? Yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, that exact um, area has been part of what has been under transformation um, here as what we have, a the, the terminology is system redesign. We have been on this multi-year journey um, to uh, really transform a number of facets of the system. And one of them is uh, that exact kind of shared governance you described. And so um, the model that has been now in place for a good couple of years, uh, maybe even a little longer, has been fantastic. I I think, in terms of improving that and and really allowing us to be more powerful as a system. So um, what has been established is lots of acronyms. So I'll try to <laughs> cover what they mean. But um, so we have the SLG or the Strategic Leadership Group. And what that does is it pulls together from each institution a number of disciplines into dedicated groups. So for instance, the CFOs have a group, the chief technology officers, the chief academic officers, and there are uh, several others. And so um, those groups are critically important. So one of my big responsibilities is um, the interface with that group. So making sure that, um, you know, we are bringing forward, you know, relevant and timely information. We're vetting issues with that group. Um, Another piece that's really helpful that we um, folded in is that those groups have university-based leaders. So we have uh, kind of nomination and voting process and we have um, with the CFOs, we have co-leaders. And so then I have, um, you know, two individuals to do, do, you know, planning and understand, you know, what are the issues on the ground and how can the system, you know, um, provide information or be a part of that. And so those, those, uh, groups, um, interact quite frequently. And then we've done different things over time, um, including, um, the heads of those groups all Interacting with each other, the entire group interacting with each other. You know, we we keep um, experimenting with different models. And then, in addition, a very important part of that governance is what we call the ELG or the Executive Leadership Group, which is all ten university presidents and the chancellor and deputy chancellor. And so, um, that group, in fact, it was it was active for about a year before COVID. But really, um, I think. The COVID pandemic brought that group together, you know, even in a tighter way. And so they meet for two hours every single week. And you can appreciate how busy university presidents and chancellors are. And they really, I think that just shows how seriously they take that shared governance and the time that they take to um, connect. And so oftentimes, you know, items move from the SLG groups to the ELG groups as we vet them and bring them forward. And then actually information really flows both ways. And, um, you know, I have a, a lot of responsibility for, um, you know, covering topics and, and matters for the ELG as well. That's good. And I realized I neglected one other area oh, that's when okay. I covered my profile and that is also internal audit. So internal audit is also kind of administratively reports up to me and that has also been going undergoing a lot of change. It was uh, in source, and now we have it uh, mostly outsourced. So all of those uh, topics and matters are, are things that I discuss with those groups.
0: So what is your day to day? I know every day is different because there's always different things coming up, but for the most part, what does your day to day look like what is you know how do you spend your days?
1: I'd say a lot of it tends to be pretty project driven um we are really you know heading through a lot of projects and initiatives, and you know I'm typically responsible for you know doing a lot of um you know the the research the um the coordination and communication about those issues. So, for example, right now, um, maybe for the third or fourth time in, in five years or so, we are doing some revamps to our planning process. Um, that's something that really, uh, from a continuous improvement standpoint, always needs a look, right? So, um, you know, we are trying to link it back to other key processes. We're trying to scan our risks and make sure that they are covered appropriately and how can we enhance it. So, um, you know, I'm often leading, those Groups. Um, I'll also be leading, you know, I, and those really range from very, very strategic topics to um, I'm also facilitating with some colleagues uh, for the first time. We're bringing together all of the accounts payable leaders at our universities and having them talk about, um, you know, common challenges and sharing information. And we're helping troubleshoot, um, you know, issues for them. So a lot of it is project driven. Um, you know, my staff here certainly does oversee some pretty substantial central processes. So. Um, The treasury process, um, the, we have a lot of centralized accounting. And so, you know, I'm providing them, um, direction. But I think what is really rewarding is a lot of it is, um, working on the strategic issues, um, both facing finance as well as those matters that the central leadership is, um, is addressing.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about leadership. I want to talk about some leadership lessons you've learned along the way. You have had you have a wonderful career. So talk to me a little bit about some of those leadership lessons.
1: Probably a couple things come to mind. I think one thing that I'm generally learning and appreciating is to, you know, trust my instincts and maybe speak out more. I think when you are newer in the role, you you know, and I think there's this um, concern that a lot of CFOs have, because for many decades, the CFO was the no person, they were saying no, no, and you know, can't do this or that. And, and, you know, Nakubo and other groups have been really helpful in, in making sure that we understand to be a strategic partner, you know, you do need to broaden your perspective. And so I think a lot of us take that seriously. And so, you know, but at the same time, there's a balance and, you know, how to speak out on something, when to speak out. Um, and I think, for me, um, you know, and I think with anybody, it's important to read the room, uh, make sure that you get those opportunities one on one with your president or your colleague. Um, but then, you know, when difficult points needs raised, when a risk needs flagged, um, or difficult decision needs make, you know, just trusting your instincts, um, because really often the organization is looking for the CFO to do that. Um, I'd say more so than other positions. And so, um, recognizing that, um, has been really important. So I think generally um, that's a leadership skill that I have been honing um, and focused on. Um, I would also say, I think I'd be remiss in saying in higher ed, if um, you know, communication and shared governance learning is always part of the equation as well. So, um, you know, really making sure I think if you know, if you if you think you've communicated something enough, probably do it a couple more times, a couple more ways. There's no such thing as over communicating. And I can look back to, you know, one or two projects where, you know, I thought we had done it. And, you know, you'd realize, well, we perhaps could have consulted in this group or, or you know, attended this meeting and spoke about it. Um, that's a big departure from my prior life. You know, when I was in corporate, that just wasn't part of the equation. But, you know, um, I, At the institutions and at the system, everyone does want to know what is happening, you know, why is it happening, and they want a chance to dialogue on it. And I think those learnings I had early on in that leadership role really helped prep me for what I was describing earlier, this, I'd say, it's even a more complicated and important communication flow at the system office between um, our our university CFOs, our university presidents, and making sure you've really done that thoroughly. So uh, I think that that background and learning um, helped equip me for that.
0: Well, let's jump to mentorship a little bit. I love how you went back to your undergrad and how you said you had a professor call you that had to have been on the the regular phone we didn't the regular have, phone that's right <laughs> that he'd call you every week, so he was very student centered he wanted to you know motivate you and 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 let you know that you could do this so talk to me about some other mentors mentors along the way and how you are now
1: mentoring others as well. This is one of my favorite topics. Um, so, you know, I really can't say enough about the importance of mentoring. Um, you know, from, I'd say, a formal perspective, I've been part of ECUBO's mentoring program now for over five years. Um, I started as a mentee. Over time, I became a mentor, and now I am co-chair of that program. Um, I'm really passionate about it. And I think, you know, when it comes down to the value Value, um, really being ha- having somebody you can be truly um, vulnerable with and share your struggles um, gaining perspective that they might have because um, I think mentors they obviously have all of that their own learning and experience but they can be just a little more detached and give you an objective um, point of view which is so so helpful um, for me here and as I look back there just have been so many folks but um, you know maybe a couple that I I would highlight um, there was a, there is a, an individual who is still in our system. Um, he was a, a chief business officer at another university. Um, he has risen very quickly. He is now actually a president in our system. Um, he reached out to me so many times as I was getting my footing at Slippery Rock. He knew I came from a different industry, and you know, just constantly offering um, you know direction and support and you know advice. And he actually. Um, um, brought me in a uh, twofold. He brought me into getting involved in ECUBA, which I am really significantly now. And also, um, he tapped me and said, I think you should join um, the ECUBA mentoring program. I think you should um, do that as well. And so I had that formal mentor as part of that program. And um, she was fantastic. I was going through some challenging times um, with some dynamics uh, with with some issues at the time. And so just being able to um, talk Those through with her was incredibly helpful. And so, yeah, I mean, now for me, um, I'm now, you know, looking to where I can provide that for others. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm fortunate because here at the system office, um, we have give or take about a hundred, uh, finance professionals across our universities and through various projects, I have the opportunity to get to know them and spend time with them. And, you know, Understand if they are looking for, you know, some mentoring, they have a, you know, a question or, you know, I can talk to them about their career path. So I get the opportunity to do that, uh, be a formal, uh, mentor. And, um, it's, it's just, I I can't say enough about it. And I think, um, you know, if you're not, uh, if anyone listening, if you're not in a mentoring capacity, look into it really and just, just reach out to folks because it can really range. I mean, I think back to Slippery Rock, I served as a mentor to several of the student workers who came through our office. They were all finance majors and, um, you know, they really were, were looking for some additional perspective.
0: Yeah, no, that's really good. I'm feeling led to ask you about work-life balance, dealing with all that you do at the system and family. Um, and how you balance that out and just not just, just your personal, you know, life to make sure that you're not overdoing. And, you know, how do you balance that all out?
1: Yeah. So I think the key is that I've realized is balance probably doesn't necessarily always happen in a given day or given week. It's more about over the long term. So, um, for instance, especially now in this role at the system office, I have a lot of responsibilities for board meetings. Uh, we have quarterly meetings um, and often additional meetings and sometimes workshops and then pre-meetings and so on and so forth. So um, really that cycle around a quarterly board meeting doesn't feel very balanced. <laughs> um you know and and I think just being able to recognize and know that, and so then proactively building in some time where for some additional family time, um both before and after, you know one thing that i 'm really proud of that a colleague of mine uh, thought of a couple years ago is um we have something at the system office that we call common days there's it 's a university term you know common hour, it means nothing gets scheduled and our board meetings are always a Wednesday and a Thursday. And he has proposed that the, that the, uh, following Friday and Monday are common days. So that way people can, you know, take a vacation day without everything piling up. There isn't a lot of meetings. It's a chance to, um, catch your breath. So, um, I have appreciated those kind of efforts. And, you know, I think for me, it's just the planning, quite frankly, because I know, um, I'll have certain seasons that are busier with travel they're busier with board commitments and so um, making sure when I can find that window that I do take advantage of it. Um, I also have hobbies that I enjoy so I enjoy hiking um, I enjoy yoga I enjoy several things and I just you know make make time for them I really do.
0: That's good. No, that's so good. Thank you for sharing that. So before we close, I want to talk about your future, where you see yourself uh, in the future and the future of higher ed altogether. I know that's two loaded questions, but uh, where do you foresee yourself in higher ed in the future?
1: I mean, I think for me, my goal is always to be able to continue learning and growing. And I think this role has given me that, continues to give me that. Um, so I think there are no shortage of um, projects and challenges. You know, one I'm dipping into now that I'll probably be with for a while is our universities have done a lot of work to uh, right size their, their budgetary footprint to, um, you know, adapt to what might be a smaller size, well, now there is a lot of space that needs to be dealt with. (laughs) And, um, you know, most of these institutions are in very rural settings. So it's not as simple as, you know, finding a local business to take over the space. These are complex problems. The space often has debt with it. And so that's one of my challenges at the moment is um, really understanding and researching and, you know, bringing forward opportunities So I think, you know, that's going to continue to be the case. And, you know, my goal is to just continue to make sure that um, Pashi is as strongly positioned as it can be and making sure that, you know, it can be nimble, responsive, um, and that we're addressing risk. And so I've got a lot of, a lot of opportunities to tackle those, um, types of projects here. I also personally want to continue to stay really active in my profession. Um, I am really, really engaged in ECUBO. I gained so much from that organization. I just took on the role of chairing the program and services committee for ECUBO. Um, I'm on uh, a co-chair of the mentoring program and on the executive board. So I'm really um, excited about that work and continuing to uh, you know enjoy spending that time with my my peers. And then you know just in terms of of the higher education climate, I think, there's probably a couple of things that come to mind. One is, you know, just staying ahead of that sentiment that perhaps a college degree isn't worth it anymore. Um, that sentiment is growing among a lot of prospective students and their parents. There's a lot of, you know, mixed messages out there and in particular at, at, the state system, as I mentioned, a third of our students are first generation college students. And so potentially college might not be promoted in their household. And then these messages um, coming out really, you know, and, and we take it seriously in terms of making sure the data is front and center of the value. Um, and so making sure that the, these students are, aren't turning away this tremendous opportunity to change the trajectory of their lives, quite frankly. So you know, working through that. And then I think the other piece that I think about, you know, certainly from time to time is AI and how that's going to affect us all, you know, affect some of the functions that I work with, affect, you know, uh, honestly, the classroom, just so many things. And I certainly don't have the crystal ball on that. But just I think that's important to, to recognize. Yeah, definitely
0: need to keep our eye on that. And for sure. And also, I want to thank you for everything that you do with Ikubo and Nakubo. We appreciate that. And can you give a final plug for that and the importance of being a part of that? I, I absolutely will.
1: Um, I was just going to say, I find it really a joy. I mean, I, and I think, you know, it's hard uh, in some cases, you know, these are busy jobs. Our day jobs are very busy, right? But this work is really rewarding. And so it's something I look forward to doing. And I think what I've gained the most, I mean, certainly the formal programs I've been a part of mentoring and and some others as I was moving along my career journey. But um, the networking and the support, I, I think, you know, you know, these are hard jobs and being able to have a network of people who understand what that looks like, who you can, you know, talk to and say, I'm dealing with this problem, or have you come across this? It's so, so helpful. And, um, you know, I've quite frankly made a lot of great friends, uh, a great, uh, great set of friends there. And, um, you know, I've enjoyed being part of developing that programming and, you know, just really where our profession is heading. So I would, encourage folks to, to get involved in their local Kubo and um, you know really just just dig in and engage. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Molly, for being with us today.
0: Certainly. It was, it was, I really enjoyed it. Good. You gave us some great information. And thank you all for joining us today for this episode of CBO Speaks brought to you by the National Association of College and University Business Officers. You can find resources for today's episode as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Molly Mercer of Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education, I want to thank you for joining us on CBO Speaks. I'm Donna Sheely. Be well. CBO Speaks is a production of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. Audio engineered by Andy Nelson and True Story FM. Music by Michael Bean. Post-production support by Janelle Dempsey. And I'm your host, Donna Sheely. Thank you for listening.